0: Well the movie, The Notebook, uh, focuses on two teenage kids who fall in love. And there's the girl who's from a wealthy family and she's spending the summer at the family's vacation home, a very well-to-do family, and she falls in love with a boy who's a lower-class, working-class boy. And everything seems to be going well, there's only one problem, the girl's mom doesn't approve which if you know anything, that's a big problem. So the things seem to be going well, and and there's kind of some conflict, and the summer ends, and they leave. And as they leave, the boy promises the girl, I'm going to write you letters. The the scene takes place in the 1940s. I'm going to write you letters. And so she goes home thinking that she's greatly loved by this boy, waiting in anticipation because her her life has been changed because of the love she's experienced. And she goes the next day, and there's no letter. For a week, there's no letter. For a month, there's no letter. She thought she had been loved, and she started to feel betrayed and abandoned, forgotten. The movie fast forwards seven years, the boy's gone off to fight in World War II, she's gone off to graduate from college, and because it's Hollywood, of course, they reunite and meet in a pouring rainstorm where we all have normal conversations. (laughs) And as they're in this flood of rain, she looks at him and says, why didn't you write me? And he goes, what? She says, why didn't you write? He said, I wrote you. I wrote you 365 letters. I wrote you a letter every single day. But see, the girl's mom had intercepted every letter, and she had no idea. And in that moment, it changes everything for her. Because in that moment, she understood that she was loved far more than she had realized. She was loved far more than she had realized. See, for each of us here today, we are loved far more than we realize not by a spouse or by parents or by someone else, but each and every one of us here this morning are loved by God far more than we realize. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you open them please to the book of Luke, the book of Luke chapter 15. This is the the second week in a two-part series that we're calling Lost and Found, looking at three parables of Jesus all around the same theme of something being lost it being found, and there being great rejoicing at the finding of it. The setting, let me remind you, is, is in front of this, these parables, is on one hand we have the tax collectors and the sinners, the, the, the lowest of the low in the religious class, and then we have the Pharisees, the religious elite. So Jesus tells these parables to this wide audience. Last week, we looked at the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. And this morning, we're going to look at um, perhaps the most well-known parable, not just in this chapter, but in all of Scripture, often what we call the parable of the prodigal son. But we're going to find this morning that this parable is not about one son. It's about two. It's not about one son who was lost. It's about two sons who were lost. That's why we're talking this morning about the lost sons. But the main focus this morning actually isn't on either of the sons. The main focus of the parable is on the Father. The main focus is on the Father. And as we look this morning, we're going to discover three truths of God's love in these passages. Three truths of God's love. The text starts off in verse 11. It says this And he said, This is Jesus, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, Give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. What the son asks of the father is so culturally insensitive and shocking that we cannot understand it. But in their time, they would have understood that no good son says such a thing to dad. Essentially, what he's saying is two things. First, I wish you were dead. Second, the only thing that matters to me is what I can get from you. I don't value relationship. All I care about is what I can get from you. So give me what's coming, my inheritance. Give it to me early. And even more shocking than what the son asks is what the father does, that he does it. He divides up the inheritance. The younger son would have gotten one-third. Two-thirds would have gone to the eldest son. And he divides up the property. So it continues in verse 13. It says this. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, took a journey into a far country, and there squandered his property in reckless living. The son's intentions quickly come forward. He liquidates his assets, sells off all he can, converts it to cash, and leaves the father's home, gets as far away from dad as he can. And it says that he squandered his property in reckless living. The word reckless here is the same word often in the New Testament Testament translated debauchery. These aren't unwise investments and risky business ventures. This is over-the-top, sinful living. Verse 14 tells us this, that he had spent everything. A severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. Continues, it says this, And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. He's in a far country, so he's going to try and do it himself. So he hires himself out to feeding pigs. And if you know anything about the Jewish religion and pigs... They don't go together to say it mildly. Not only to eat, but to touch a pig was considered unclean. The son has now degraded himself to the lowest level possible to try and make things right on his own. And he's so hungry in such a continual state of need that he longs to be fed by this same food, but no one's going to give him anything at all. See, the first truth of God's love that we see in these passages. The first truth of God's love is that God's love is exceptional. God's love is exceptional. God's love is always better than anything the world could ever offer us. See, the young son went out and lived his life to the very fullest that the world would say, and he was left alone and empty with nothing. See, if you're here this morning and you're young, if you don't know if you're young, that means you're not young, right? But if you're here this morning and you think you're young and you've grown up in church, there's often a temptation to think that what really will bring me happiness is something else, something kind of outside. I've been raised in this kind of Christianity. Maybe there's something better. There's nothing better than the love of the Father, His love is exceptional. There's nothing better than what God can offer us. But this isn't just something that that young people, that teenagers or college students struggle. This is something that each and every one of us battle in our own hearts and our own lives every single day. As we think to ourselves, if only I can get the promotion. If only I get the job. If only this year the raise comes through. It's why we jump to the next relationship and the next relationship thinking, that will bring me happiness. And we search all over for things that will fill our hearts when the only thing that will is the love of the Father. So you could spend your whole life searching for something better than God's love, and you would never find it. The love God has for us, it's exceptional. It's better than anything the world could offer. I like to think of it like this. Imagine you live in Chicago, which most of us here this morning do, and you find yourself thinking of doing a very noble task, of setting out in this great country to find the very best pizza our country has to offer, a very noble task. And so maybe you would head west first. You would head out to California, and you'd eat California-style pizza. And it would be good, but you would continue your journey, and you'd find yourself in St. Louis, eating some very thin crust pizza, very crispy, and you would think, this is good. I'm I'm gonna keep looking. And so you'd make your way up to Detroit. You'd have some pan pizza, made in a square, cut thick. You're like, okay, okay, this this is good. And so you continue to head east to the mid-Atlantic region, Philadelphia, New Jersey, where some places don't even call it pizza, but they call it tomato pie. That's not a joke, that actually is true. And you would eat it and think, okay, this is good. But then you think, oh, but wait, I know it's close. And so you'd go over the river and you'd be like, oh, this is world famous. I can't wait. And then you would try this. <laughs> this is the best the world has to offer? New York style pizza? Really? Like, I love Pastor Ed, but if Pastor Ed ever tries to tell us that this is the best thing that pizza has to offer us, please don't listen to him. And eventually, you head home. Your flight lands at the airport, and you head to your house, and you're hungry. So, what else do you do? You order a pizza, and you open something that looks like this. And you realize that in your journey, all along, you had the very best thing there. My friends, we could search far and wide. Spend our lives searching for something better than God's love, but we won't find it because it doesn't exist. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it's not there. There is no such thing. If you're seeking after happiness and peace, it's only found with the Father. Nothing of the world could satisfy God's love is exceptional. The parable continues. It says this, but when he came to himself, some translations say he came to his senses. It's actually a Hebrew expression for repentance, for turning back home. He said to himself, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He comes to his sentence. He realizes what he's left when he left the father. But he's given up all rights of sonship. He's already taken what was coming to him, and he's thrown it all away. He has no rights when he goes home. So he thinks, maybe I could be a servant. So he heads home. It was nearing the end to another day. The house was busy with the, the afternoon bustle of people going back and forth. But dad always finished a little bit early to sit out front and soak in the afternoon sunshine. And he stared off into the distance and he wasn't just admiring the view. He was looking. As he had every single day looking and one day as he sat down and and he looked out over the view from their house he saw a speck and as it got closer his heart started racing see not many people would have recognized him he was far thinner than when he left he hadn't showered in who knows when. He smelled like who knows what. His hair was matted. He wasn't wearing the clothes that he left with, but the father knew who it was. It was his son. Verse 20 says that he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion And his founds. and they began to celebrate. See, the first truth of God's love is that it's extravagant. The second, exceptional, excuse me, the second truth is that God's love is extravagant. It's an over-the-top, celebrating, rejoicing love that has no ends towards us. See, the father looks and sees his son, and notice in this passage, when he's overwhelmed with, it, with compassion... Is it after the son comes home, bows before him, shows a contrite heart that the father is then moved? No. Notice it's the second he sees his son, he's overwhelmed with compassion. He's moved with compassion and the son hasn't said one word. And so he runs. For a patriarch, the main male figure to run was dishonorable. Running was for kids. The father couldn't contain his joy. He runs to the son. As the son sees him, he's thinking, oh man, he can't wait till I get back. He has to come out here and start the punishment early. But rather than being smothered in punishment, he's smothered in love. And notice the son goes to give his speech, but do you notice something different here versus the prepared speech that he had? Do you notice that it's shorter? He can't even get it all out before dad interrupts him and restores him with each of these actions to full sonship. Bring him a new robe, the best robe, likely the father's robe, and put it on him. Give him a ring signaling the authority that the family would have. Give him shoes. See, servants and slaves didn't have shoes, shoes were a luxury. So give this this man shoes. He's not a servant or a slave. He's my son. Kill the fattened calf. They didn't often eat meat at their meals. And the fattened calf just wasn't any, but it was the most choice of meat. It was the best. And it wasn't enough meat so like, hey, dad and son can celebrate. The fattened calf meant we're throwing a party like this place hasn't seen in a long time. That's God's response When a lost child comes back home. See, some of you today may have wandered far away from God. And maybe you're being drawn back to God, but there's something inside you that's holding you back, and it's fear. And it's fear that if you turn back to God, He's gonna look at you with a long list of your mistakes. He's going to beat you over the head and say, it's about time, where have you been? He's going to want you to give an account for every single thing that you've done and why it's taken you so long. I want you to realize this morning that the moment we turn back to God, God will take us back. God will always take us back. The Father's heart is for His kids And the moment we turn in repentance to God, it doesn't matter how long or how far we've wandered, God is a God who will always take us back. So if fear is holding you back from turning from your sin this morning, would you see today the extravagant love of God that defies all logic and takes the son back home? That same love is offered to each and every one of us. Well, we said this parable wasn't just about one son, but about two. And so far, the whole thing is focused on one. And now we're going to see the part where the second son comes in. And as we do, we clearly see that Jesus tells this parable to the tax collectors and sinners and to the Pharisees. And it's very easy for us now to see on who these two sons represent. The younger, the tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees see themselves in the older son. So Jesus continues, verse 25. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. See, the brother saw this party, and this wasn't a normal dinner party. This was over the top. What's going on? And he was out working late, as he probably regularly did. And he was told, your son's come home. Your brother, excuse me. And what's his response? Where's he been? He's safe? He's sound? How is he doing? I can't wait to see him. No, Jesus says that he responded with this. Verse 28. But he was angry he was angry that god's love would excuse such sin in other people when he had worked so hard for his dad and he refused to go in now causing dishonor to the father so the father came out and entreated him notice that now the father has brought his younger son into the house and now he leaves the house to go talk to the older son but the oldest son answered his father, says, Look, these many years I've served you. I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never even gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. See, he wants a young goat, something small that would be put in an exclusive celebration with friends that not everyone would be invited to. He thinks he's earned the love of the father. Notice how he refers to his brother. This son, derogatory, this son of yours. This isn't my brother. This is your son of yours. How dare you treat him like this? The father replies, says this. He said to him, son, you were always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Notice how the father refers to him it's not my son, it's your brother. He's home. And the word here where it says it's fitting that we celebrate, some translations say it was necessary or we must. God says, listen, it's my nature that when my kids come home, I have to celebrate. I have to throw a party. I cannot contain my joy. And the older son, as the scene ends, is left standing outside. And we don't know if he joins into the party or not. And sadly, when we look at the history of the New Testament, we see that most of the Pharisees who were pushing against Jesus for eating with sinners... And tax collectors, they didn't join in the party, but they stayed outside the house. See, the third truth of God's love that this passage shows us, the third truth is that God's love is enduring. God's love is enduring. It remains constant and unchanging for us. It's not based on our performance or our actions. See, this parable corrects two common misconceptions that we can have about God's love that the the oldest son certainly had. The first thing it corrects is this. It tells us this, that you cannot lose God's love. You cannot lose God's love. The older son thought that the younger son must have lost the love of the father because he had sinned, he had been gone too far and for too long and brought too much dishonor. But you cannot lose the love of the father. And some of us here this morning struggle with this understanding. See, we've placed our faith in Jesus, but but every day we struggle with doubts. Does God love me today? Will God love me tomorrow? Will God love me? What, What if I do this? Will God still love me? If you're someone who struggles wondering if God loves you, look at how God brings the younger son home. You cannot lose God's love. But not only can we not lose God's love, in relation to the older brother, this passage teaches us that you cannot earn God's love either. You cannot earn God's love. See, the older son thought he deserved the love of the father. He had done so much. He had obeyed every command. Certainly, I've earned this right to be loved by you. The younger son was lost in his sin. The older son was lost in his self-righteousness. And the scary thing is, the older son didn't realize that he was lost at all. He thought he was fine. See, nothing in our lives can earn God's love. Perhaps you're here this morning, your church attendance. What you do is to earn God's love. But there's a subtle but significant difference in our hearts when we're about in our lives showing God love versus trying to earn God's love. This past week was my wife's birthday. And so we went and celebrated together. We had lunch with family. We went and and had dinner together. We saw a show. We went and had dessert together. And we had a great time. But I can tell you in all those things that I did for my wife this week, not once did I think to myself, I hope this is enough that I've earned her love for today. I really hope she loves me if I've done enough. But why did I do it for her? I did it because I wanted to show her the love that I have for her. I wasn't trying to earn anything back. I was simply showing her the love that I had. Now see, the the thing about the older son and self-righteousness is on the outside, it looks the same as others'. We can't look at other people and know, are they showing love or trying to earn love? The only thing that we know is our own hearts. And so I would ask you this morning to search your own heart. Are you here at church today? Do you give? Do you help uh, feed the homeless? Do you do all these different things to try and earn God's love? Or is it an overflow to show God love? You see, I think churches so often are filled with older brothers who are filled in their self-righteousness, but we're lost just the same. Not lost in our sin, but lost in our efforts to try and earn something before God. The question isn't, have we earned his love? The question is, have we received his love in our lives? My prayer for us this morning is the same as Paul prayed for the church In Ephesians chapter 3, that they might be able to understand and comprehend more the, the length and height and breadth and depth of the love of God, which Paul says surpasses all knowledge, surpasses all understanding. Because for each and every one of us here this morning, we are loved by God far more than we realize. We are loved by God far more than we realize. Whether you've woke up today far from God or whether you've walked with God for decades, we are loved by God today far more than we realize. So would we turn to him and not fear his response? Would we never question his love that we could lose it, but would we see the security that's found in the Father's love? Would we stop trying to earn the Father's love and instead show him our love? On the cross, Jesus Christ showed us the greatest example of love. And it's so great that we could spend our lives searching it and we would never fully understand it. We are loved by God far more than we realize. God, we thank you for your love for us. While we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. God, you seek after the lost, and you call us to you. You call us home. Today, may we repent of our sin and turn to you, resting assured of your love, your grace, your goodness, and your compassion for us. God, we praise you for your love, so undeserving, so overwhelming. Pray us in Jesus' name, amen.